Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for Inequality for All. Now, the thing you ought to know about this Mini Cooper is it is small. We are in proportion, me and my car. My name is Robert Reich. I was Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton. Before that, the Carter administration. Before that, I was a special aide to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> of all developed nations, the United States has the most unequal distribution of income, and we're surging toward even greater inequality. 1928 and 2007 become the peak years for income concentration. It looks like a suspension bridge. Last year, we made 36,000. I probably make 50,000 a year, working 70 hours a week. The middle class is struggling. Now, people occasionally say to me, what nation does it better? The answer is the United States. In the decades after World War II, the economy boomed, but you had very low inequality. Do you know Robert Reich? I do, indeed. He's a communist. When I was a kid, bigger boys would pick on me. I think it changed my life. I had to protect people from the people who would beat them up economically. Who is actually looking out for the American worker? The answer is nobody. If workers don't have power, if they don't have a voice, their wages and benefits start eroding. We are losing equal opportunity in America. Any one of you who feels cynical, just consider where we have been. Please welcome our moderator for tonight, Brian Brooks from the New York Film Society at Lincoln Center, and the filmmakers Jacob Hornbluth and Robert Reich. Just as a quick, before I do the in introduce our guests again, I found an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal that was actually, it was in 2007, but it was kind of interesting because it said that it reported um, that at that time, um, income, and dispa income disparity in the United States had grown to the highest level at that time. Um, and it pointed out that 50% earned less than 12.8% of all income, which was down from 13.4% in 2004. And this is, of course, in the Wall Street Journal, which is not exactly um, a hotbed of left-wing vigilance. So I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> um, but uh, just to get into the, to inequality for all, um, maybe talk about what interested you, Jacob, in, in this topic and what brought you to uh, Secretary Reich? Yeah, well, um, first of all, statistics like the ones you just brought up are, um, I was hearing a lot of those statistics. I always hear these stories of income inequality is widening, but I didn't really understand what that meant or why. And the film that we made is designed to give a framework and understanding for a lot of the information that you're receiving in the 24-hour news cycle. It connects the dots between what that income inequality means and say what the consequences are for our democracy, like why is our politics so polarized and why is anything having to do with our economy being stuck in neutral since that recession many years ago, does that have anything to do with widening and the widening income inequality that we've seen? For me, making this film was an act of passion. It's a passion project because 
this is, I feel like, the biggest story of our times, and it's also the story of my life. I'm 40. I was, since I was conscious in the late 70s to now, I've been watching this happen, and I think it's had consequences to the America I grew up in. I mean, uh, Bob, to my left over here, grew up in an age of when uh, social change was possible. They felt social change could happen. They were sort of excited about social change. And I feel like a lot of people in my generation and younger are, um, they're not cynical, really. They're still idealistic when you get underneath it, but they're, they, they haven't seen those examples of social movements working. And so they look around and they, I think they're, you know, in some ways horrified by this the society and the culture that this widening income inequality has created, but they don't know what to do about it. And I wanted to make a film that sort of laid out the problem, put it in front of people in a way that maybe they could do something with. And of course, uh, Robert Reich is, was a former, or the former uh, labor secretary under Bill Clinton. Um, so what made you, how did you guys get together and you're thinking, okay, this is, this is the guy, this is the one who I wanna deliver this message in my film. So what, what was the dynamic with that? Well, it, it, it helped that I had his phone number when okay. we were getting ready to make the movie. Um, we both, uh, we live close. Yeah. We live close by. Uh, I had been looking for a way that I could do something. I'm a filmmaker. Maybe I can make films and do something to make a difference. So I called up Bob and I asked him if he would answer some questions for me, make some short videos with me that I would just post online. And uh, the first few we made got uh, hundreds and thousands of hits. Um, people were watching these short two-minute videos because I, I had this sense that they were looking for information that sort of stepped out of the partisan bickering of the 24-hour news cycle and gave them some information that they could act on. And once we started making those videos and they had some traction, I think um, it was a pretty natural progression from there to like the big story we wanted you know, to tell is, the, is this is inequality for all. Uh, what this means for our economy and our democracy. And so Bob at that same time had been writing a book called Aftershock. And uh, I got a, my hands on a manuscript and it was an aha moment for me. I read the book and I thought, I never understood it this way. He's the perfect guy. He also happens to be, I think, the best person out there at communicating complex issues in a way that everybody can understand. Uh, so it wasn't just me thinking, oh, I, I'd like to make a movie about the economy and figure stuff out. It was that. Uh, his ideas in the movie were kind of always intertwined for me and I felt sort of fortunate because I feel like if I didn't know him I would sort of wish I could invent a guy like him you know <laughs> he's, he's a tremendously compelling person a person I greatly admire and uh, he's great on camera yeah. so <laughs> hi, hi Jake uh, well let, let me return the compliment I, I mean Jake uh, really has created a, a film about a topic that I, I've written about and I've worked on and I've taught and I've you know, been in government trying to uh, reverse the trends for uh, 30 odd years uh, and uh, I've been a total failure. I mean, the things are worse now than they were when I started. Uh, so I, uh, but I didn't think about film. I have two boys uh, who are in their 20s and they have been saying to me for years, Dad, if you want to really reach young people and you know when you want to reach America you've got to think more in terms of visual images and film and video uh, and you know it's nice that you're writing books but come on well so you know, my books are the kind of books that once you put them down you can't pick them up uh, 
and uh, so, but, but here's the thing. Uh, uh, 95% of all of the economic gains since the recovery began, 95% have gone to the top 1%. And what that means, you know, a lot of people are wondering, well, why is this economy, this economic recovery so anemic? I mean, why are so many people uh, so stressed? Why is it that, in fact, families, the, the median household income is now 6% below what it was when the recovery began. Uh, so what's going on here? Uh, and I uh, have been writing about it, but when Jake came and said, well, let's do a movie upon it, I, I was intrigued about the possibilities. Uh, and I must say one further thing, and I think it's just, it's fascinating to have this opportunity to talk to you, but also in the Apple store and to see so many people buying stuff. Uh, and uh, I mean, in one, they, in one sense it's great, uh, in another sense it's ironic uh, because uh, most people in this country are now living from paycheck to paycheck. Are, there, there is almost no economic security left. Uh, and we are living through a time in which the top 1% is doing better than ever. Uh, and that is hurting the economy and it's hurting our democracy in very, very profound ways. You don't have to get into a discussion about fairness or morality. Uh, I'm ready to do that. But what this film does, uh, and Jake does so ingeniously, is really talk about how inequality is undermining our economy and our democracy. Why it is bad for all of us. The rich would do much better with a smaller share of a rapidly growing economy than a big share, like they currently have, of one that is barely growing at all because people don't have the purchasing power to keep it going. Secretary Reich, I was just curious about something you just said, but you never thought of a film, but your former colleague, Vice President Gore, actually went to a film about an issue that he really cares about, of course, which is climate change. Um, and, and it never really, that it, it, it wasn't something that kind of occurred to you, like, you know, I gotta get this on a movie. Well, I, you know, I, I admire uh, Al Gore a great deal, but I never, I really never paid much attention to the medium. And when Jake uh, and I started this, and Jake really had this idea, uh, Al Gore and Inconvenient Truth was not in our minds. Uh, but as we began getting deeper and deeper, and Jake went to my class at Berkeley and uh, saw what I was doing in that class, uh, things started to gel. Uh, and let me just say, I, as much as I admire Al Gore, I am much funnier than Al Gore. <laughs> Can we be clear about that? Now, it's a low bar, to be sure. <laughs> well, that, that's what he just brought up is something I'm particularly proud of in the movie, that the, the heart of the film is um, you think you're going to make see a movie about income inequality. You think it's going to be heavy and depressing and dark. And I actually think there's humor in the film. It's... Uh, it's a surprisingly watchable film for what you would call an issue, you know, what might be called an issue-driven documentary. It works as a piece of cinema. I mean, I always talk about a movie viewing experience for me. You have to shut off the lights, go into this transformation machine that is the movie for an hour and a half, and you want to come out changed. You, want, you don't want to go in thinking you already know the answer or how the film's going to end or what's, what's worked out. I mean, widening income inequality is bad, so I don't want, that's, that's, not, that's not giving away the ending. But sort of what it all means and how it's connected, how all the issues connect together, I think really does, does make the movie a satisfying, you know, and fun movie to watch. You know, when, we, when they, we showed it for the first time, 
at the Sundance Film Festival, uh, we didn't know what we were going to get. This is the first audience that saw it. And afterwards, a woman put up her hand and she said, uh, I don't know, maybe it's me, maybe I'm all alone, but I, I cried and I also laughed. Uh, and she turned to the audience and she said, did anybody else have the same experience? And everybody's hand went up. Uh, so, Jake, this is a tribute to you. Uh, to make a film about widening inequality and the fundamental economic crisis of our era and our generation, uh, in which people not only cry but they laugh and they find it entertaining, is I think a great, great compliment to your artistry. And I should point out that the film won a special jury prize at the Sundance Film Festival, and you also got a really great prize in that you had five standing ovations. Um, at the festival, so um, I can attest to it being really great. Let's look at a clip, um, another clip from the film, and then we'll continue our discussion. Contrary to popular mythology, globalization and technology haven't really reduced the number of jobs available to Americans. These transformations have reduced their pay. just that wages are stagnating, but when you take into consideration rising costs, the rising costs of rents or homes, dramatically increasing costs of health care, the rising costs of child care, and also the rising costs of higher education, rising much faster than inflation, take all of these into consideration, and you find that it's much worse than just stagnating wages, it's basically middle-class families, often with two wage earners, working harder and harder and harder and getting nowhere. Can I just say, this is an upbeat film. I was going to say, no, not, I, it really, not much it really is. in that the clip. Clips, the clips, I mean, that clip is particularly downbeat, but it is, uh, people, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a film intended to inspire people uh, enable them to understand that they actually are not prisoners of this economy. They can actually change the direction we're going in right now. Talk about, I mean, and I can attest because I've seen the film and there is a lot of humor and this is one of the more sobering sort of statistics there, but talk about how you wanted to integrate, you know, telling the overall topic of income inequality, but also melding in the personal story, some personal story of, of, of Robert Reich. Well, um, very early on, the trick with this film was trying to uh, get to know the messenger enough that you could hear the message, lining up his personal story with the larger issue of widening income inequality. So people who watch this film, I think, will get to know Bob in a way that maybe even all the times you've seen him on TV, it just sort of goes sort of beneath the surface to sort of get, get to know him a little, maybe even a little more than he was comfortable with, frankly, when we, when we uh, set forth to make the film. So. Um, uh, that was that was a key point. It also was uh, one of the if you when you see the movie, uh, the first scene of the film is him getting into his car and driving around as a personal moment. And I have to say that that was sort of the key to the making of the film for me, or that that was when the structure sort of fell into place because we were looking for a way to start the movie and we put that at the front and people really liked it and I didn't understand why. I thought at the time we were making um, a film about 
this topic, and we had, uh, you know, we had aerial footage going over all these cities in America, and it felt sort of broadly American. And then we threw all that away, and we got the shot of a guy going to his car, like going somewhere. And that felt like the key to the film in a way, because you had to meet him first before you could hear the the message of the film. Uh, you know, after that. This has actually been a, a point of some uh, contention, uh, contention is too strong a word, a point of some uh, discomfort uh, for me uh, in the making of the film because I did not really, I'm sort of a private, I really am a very private person. I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with as much of my biography being used in the film as Jake decided to use and I was finally convinced by Jake and by others uh, on the team that the way that people can open up and learn about the issue is through the personal stories and narratives of me and a couple of other uh, individuals who were in the film. And those stories and narratives uh, are emotional connections. In other words, it's not just intellectual. We learn through our brains and also uh, through our emotions. Uh, so uh, I came around to understanding that. Uh, I'm not, even to this moment, I'm not 100% comfortable. Did it take uh, a little while in the filming process before you did open up, or at least were willing to do, let some aspects of your personal life and history, biography, autobiography, or whatever, to uh, come into play? Yes, it did. I mean, I, Jake and I uh, spent a lot of time uh, with uh, basically us filming. I mean, it was a conversation. Uh, Jake would be behind the camera and asking me questions, and because we had by then become very good friends, I felt, uh, you know, I didn't really have much compunction about talking about things, but I, I trusted him. I, I, I didn't, uh, I knew that he would not abuse my trust in terms of uh, revealing things that were very personal, but at the same time, uh, the, the movie did become personal. Yeah, how about from the filmmaker point of view? What's that like? You know, just guide, how far do you get into the the, the personal with with your subjects? Well, or at least in this. Somebody well, told this me film. this is my first documentary, uh, and somebody told me very early on that the secret to making a good documentary is trust from your subjects. You know, treat them with respect and and respect uh, and dignity, and they'll and that'll be returned to you in spades and. It just sort of was very natural for us. I have to say, like, the tone of the film is comedic and, um, and deeply human in the same way that he is. Um, and I think that this lining up of our sensibilities was clear to us before we made the film, the fact that we sort of shared a point of view in a way. I like humor as well. I've directed comedies before in my past, and, um, and I think, you know, Bob always calls humor the great... Uh, antiseptic. When you disinfectant. Dis disinfectant, yeah. So when it's you an antiseptic too, but it's more of a disinfectant. So when you disagree with somebody, this is a good way to kind of smooth that over. And But, you know, it's also about, uh, I guess, in a sort of rational, clear way, putting all these dots together, speaking truth to power, but not doing it sort of screaming with screaming vitriol, doing it with uh, reason was sort of the underlying source of the film. And since we shared that, I felt like I knew the right amount of his personal story that wanted to go in, and I was confident that when he saw the finished product, he would see that it would match up with something that um, he would be comfortable with. Okay. Let's look at the second clip. When I was a kid, the bigger boys would uh, pick on me. Yeah, that was what you did. That's what 
is done. So I got an idea that I would make alliances with older boys. You know, just one or two who would be my protectors. The summer when I was about uh, 10, one of the older boys who I depended on to kind of be a protector, his name was Michael Schwerner. In the summer of 64, I learned that Mickey had been in Mississippi uh, registering voters. And he and two other people who had been with him registering voters were, uh, were tortured and murdered. And when I heard that my protector had been murdered by the real bullies, I think it changed my life. I had to protect people from the bullies, the people who would beat them up economically or the people who would subject them and their families to real harm. Because if you don't have a voice, if you don't have power, if you are vulnerable economically in society, you don't have anybody to protect you. Another upbeat clip, I guess. Well, um, some of the moments in the film that you haven't seen in the clips, but you will see in the movie, um, some of the moments that really shine are when Secretary Reich is, is speaking in front of his class in Berkeley. So, I mean, and we were talking about this a little bit before we came on stage and talk about what, why that became important areas or important moments for you to include in this film. Well, uh, there's a lot of threads that needed to weave together to make one story for this film. But the classroom, surprisingly, I mean, a lot of people think when you're making an issue-driven film that you sort of know where it's going or you know how the story's going to work. We didn't know that the classroom was going to be part of this film until I showed up with some cameras there to shoot it as you would any other aspect of his life. And it turns out that um, I was riveted. It was maybe the college class that I had idealized in my mind that I never got a chance to take. I mean, you look around at that classroom, you see all the students in the classroom, and you wonder what they're thinking. What are they, what are they thinking about their future? What, are they, uh, what kind of economy are they going into? And you, and you hear the, the, the lecture, and it's, it's um, you know, it changes the way you think. I mean, it's that when everybody imagines if you can go to college, if you haven't gone yet, or if you, uh, even after you've gone, you sort of imagine that, there's gonna be this amazing class that breaks down everything you thought before and makes you see the world in a new way, and this is that class, uh, or was for me. So it turned out to be this sort of through line of the, uh, of, of the film. Mm -hmm. and, and, you, and in the class is one of, actually one of the subjects um, who, who makes a couple of appearances in the film, and how did you find him? And, and was, did you know him before, Secretary Reich, before, or just? Like well, I knew he was in the course, okay. uh, but I didn't know that. Maybe give a little bit of backstory about at the what. At the time, well, uh, you know, the, my classes uh, at Berkeley, some of them, this particular class has about 805 students. It's a very large class. The largest class at Berkeley, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's, it, it is very diverse economically, uh, ethnically, racially, uh, and also by age. And one of the older students in the class, uh, Jake, struck up, I guess you struck up a conversation with him, and, uh, and then he became his story, uh, also became a, an important uh, story in the film. And what Jake did is uh, 
follow me around. I, I went to a union rally at one point, and Jake found a couple, uh, two Republicans, uh, who were uh, interested in forming a union. They were Republicans, uh, they were very conservative, uh, and then you talked with them, and they became part of the film. So, in other words, what the film uh, does is it connects me and my students and my union work and my work uh, in a variety of, of places with the stories of the people who are out there uh, and it comes full circle in a very interesting way. And it happened also naturally. I mean, you look around as he's speaking, I'm wondering what you guys are thinking. You know, as I'm out there, I'm a curious person. I want to know what, what's going on, uh, you know, in general. I, I, I sort of am interested in this particular struggle on a human level. I mean, for me, this is a very personal topic. I've struggled uh, with economic uncertainty, the same as a lot of people who are going to see this movie have. I'm worried about what's happening to my economy. I'm worried that I can't figure out a way to plug into my democracy, and I'm sure everybody else who watches the film is too. So I want to talk about that with people. I mean, that's the sort of spirit that the film started from. There was one, I want to get to some questions from the audience, so get those ready. Um, but just one quick one before we do that. Um, this was a little line of statistics that I thought was interesting that really grabbed my attention. I was actually just recently in Canada, and I, when, I, when I'm there, I can't help but get into conversations with my Canadian friends because, of course, they have certain things that we don't have. Um, but anyway, it was interesting, though, that in, your, in, the, in the film here, um, you, mentioned, you cite that 42% of Americans who are born into poverty never get out of poverty. Um, and that, is, that compares to 30% in the UK, which I think traditionally we consider to be the more class-conscious society when, between the, the two of us. Um, and then it's 25% in Denmark. So I just found that really struck. But then you said that you think that the answer is actually here. Why don't you talk about that? Well, people bit? ask me all the time, uh, well, who, which nation does it better? Uh, and my answer is the United States uh, between 1946 and 1978. Uh, we had a society at that time, uh, the memory is fading of that time, but that was a, a society in which we took equal opportunity seriously. Uh, not only did we pass the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and uh, expand opportunities for women, uh, but we also had the most equal society in terms of economy that we have had any time in the last uh, 100 years. Uh, we had a top marginal tax rate under Dwight D. Eisenhower, Republican, former general, uh, that was 91%. And even if you get rid of all the deductions and, and tax credits, uh, the typical very wealthy person was paying over 50% marginal tax rate in those years. Uh, and yet the economy did much better annually during that period of time than it has done since. Uh, we invested like mad in education not only primary education, but public higher education. Uh, we built the interstate highway system, the biggest public works program in history. Uh, we took seriously uh, the mandate of equal opportunity in our society. Uh, and we did it where, regardless of whether it was Republicans or Democrats in charge, uh, we felt a, a kind of a social cohesion so that the CEOs of those eras, the most highly paid CEO, was earning 50 times what the typical worker was earning. Today, it's 350 times 
what the typical worker is earning. I, it was a, I, you know, finance was boring. Wall Street was regulated. We had very strict regulations separating investment banking from commercial banking. Uh, all of that changed by the late 70s, early 80s, and continued to change in the 90s and onward. Uh, one of the things that is important for people to understand, and the, the film makes this point, is that an economy doesn't exist out there in a state of nature. An economy is about rules. You can't have an economy without rules. And those rules come from where? From courts, from agencies, from the government. And those rules ultimately come, if you have a democracy that's working, from all of us. And so we make the rules by which the economy functions. And if we want different rules and a different economy, we should have the power to change them. Uh, that economy that we had between 1946 and 1978 worked for more of us than the economy has since then. That was, you know, just to sort of build on that, that was one of the points that I didn't know going into making this film that I think is key. The sense that it was always framed to me as free markets versus regulation. I always understood on one side, if you're a conservative, you believe in free markets, and if you're maybe a liberal, you believe in more regulation. Well, that's a false construct. I mean, the thing that sort of the film does is it says there's always rules, and right now those rules just happen to benefit capital and the 1%. It happens rather than you know labor or the other side. There's rules anyway. There's not a free market that, that exists. That's, don't believe it when people tell you that there's a free market. That doesn't happen. Those rules are set up so that uh, Wall Street is deregulated and can make more money. That's rules set up to, to benefit them. Okay. All right, so I think, yeah, someone's over there with um, microphone. We'll start, I guess, there's a couple in the front. We'll work our way around. Hi. Um, I just graduated from college down in D.C., and uh, one of the things that's been the hardest for people who are in the lower socioeconomic uh, brackets is to organize around this issue because we're spending so much of our time working and trying to live independently of our parents when we can. And even when we are, it's still tough because our parents are still struggling. Uh, but when we do organize, it's very quick to get swatted down as noise. Uh, so it's becoming kind of a, uh, like a cynicism is growing and I'm afraid of that. Uh, and it's weird because we live in the age of the internet where it's easy to organize, but so much of it is noise now. And I was wondering if uh, either of you, one, came across it, or two, have an antidote to this, because we have a lot of time that we want to use to fix this, but we're not being listened to in a way that the two generations before us can dominate the conversation really well. Uh, well, the, there are several things that I tell my students and young people generally. Number one, uh, you've got to fight cynicism because cynicism is the end of the game. If you feel that politics is inevitably corrupt, that the game is inevitably loaded against you, then that is a self-perpetuation. Uh, you might as well give up. And that is what, by the way, the moneyed interests in our society want. They would like nothing better than for everybody else to get so cynical they give up so that the moneyed interests can take over everything. Um, number two, if you look at our history, you see that we in this country have continuously, every 20 or 30 or 40 years, we reform capitalism and we make sure that capitalism's excesses don't 
actually destroy capitalism. We save capitalism from itself. Uh, we did it 1901 to 1909, the first progressive era, antitrust laws, food and drug laws, 40-hour work weeks, uh, you know, uh, 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 new laws that prevented corporate corruption uh, from infecting the machinery of government and between 1933 and 1939, social security and, uh, and, and uh, insurance, uh, all sorts of wage insurance and uh, the basics that we now take for granted in terms of minimum wage and the right to organize, to union uh, organize, and the 1960s, civil rights, uh, voting rights, Medicare, Medicare, we could go on and on. But anybody who's cynical doesn't recognize and doesn't understand our history. That's number two. Number three, demographically, this country is moving toward women having more power African-Americans having more power, Latinos having more power, young people having more power, and all of these groups get it, not entirely, but they get it more than the old power structure. So I think, given all that, inevitably we're getting to a point where this thing is going to tip. Uh, my fear, honestly, is that people get, are so angry uh, so many Americans, so angry, so disillusioned, so frustrated, uh, working harder than ever, getting nowhere, uh, that they fall prey to demagogues uh, on the left or the right who are using their anger and their fear and their anxiety to find scapegoats. You know, Bill O'Reilly, for example, I've been having this running feud with because Bill O'Reilly, 18 months ago, on his show, says Robert Reich is a communist. You know, well, I, I thought he was joking. He was not joking. I read, I watched that tape several times. He says, I'm a communist and I'm a secret admirer of Karl Marx. Well, you know, last, uh, last uh, I guess, Sunday, I wrote a piece in the New York Times, uh, an op-ed, and said, uh, somebody came, and it's true, somebody came up to me at an airport recently and said, uh, you are a communist, uh, and then he used an epithet, and I thought I was, I thought, what, you know, is my life in danger? I mean, what is going on here? And I said, where did you get that information? He said, from Bill O'Reilly. And I use that as an example of uh, the media and demagogues on the media, basically name-calling, ad hominem attacks, stirring up this anger and fear that people have and pointing the finger of blame. And then last night, what did Bill O'Reilly do on his, his own program? He said, he, was, he took umbrage. He was very upset with me. He said, Robert Reich accuses me of demagoguery, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I have, for the last 18 months, said to Bill O'Reilly in emails and letters and telephone calls, have me on your show to debate this. Have the courage, will you, instead of just calling me names and, and taking umbrage, have the courage to do this. So all of you, it's uh, write to him, O'Reilly, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, at foxnews.com, and say to him, you know, don't be a wuss. <laughs> Debate Robert Reich, mano a mano. Could I, could I take another run at your, at your point? Uh, consider my personal example Three years ago, I never made a documentary before. I was frustrated, I was angry, I didn't know what I could do. I set forth to try to do something. I made these, started making these short videos which hundreds and thousands of people started to watch. Now I got a film that's about to come out in the 
it won awards at Sundance and won some audience awards, and now it's going to come out in the top 25 markets on Friday. And uh, we got a chance to do something. You know, you speak up, you do what you can from where you're sitting. So we've designed a website in case there's other people who have an interest in doing something that's designed on who you are as a person. If you're a student, if you're unemployed, if you're a teacher, if you're a small business owner, whatever it is, you see this film, you get involved in this issue and that you want something you can do, we're gonna try and help you out, get, get there. It doesn't have to be changing the whole game, you know? Changing, wide, wide, changing widening income inequality is a big topic. There's six sort of pillars of change where trying to focus on and you can get involved in whatever one you want or else you can get involved in uh, you know based on who you are a student or an employer so check out that website and hopefully it'll have something for you as well I think there was this run right here um, Secretary Reich I um, have admired you for a long time and in more recent years as the head of Common Cause and I'm a member of Common Cause um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to the film uh, for a lot of reasons, and in part because you really are showing some of the personal story, and as somebody who's just worked on a film that's on PBS, I know how important that is. My question is this for both of you, and that is, what do you hope the effect um, on your audience is with this film? What do you want them to do as they walk out of the theater? Uh, well, I, I can speak for myself. I think, number one, I want them to have a much deeper understanding of why we are seeing these trends toward widening inequality. Number two, I want them, on the basis of that understanding, to have a much better sense of the direction of solution, what has to be done. And number three, I want to inspire them uh, as citizens to understand, in effect, that citizenry is more than just voting and paying taxes and showing up on jury duty. It's taking an active role because nothing good is going to happen in Washington or in state capitals unless citizens outside those capital cities are engaged and activated and mobilized and energized to make sure that good things happen. And, and for my part, uh, I think the discussion around widening income inequality is insufficient given the scope of the problem. I'd like to change that conversation to sort of raise the bar on it so it's not uh, just a partisan fight. I feel like this basically comes down to if you're on the left or on the right right now in the way it's framed. If you're on the right, you're angry at government or the poor. And if you're on the left, you're angry at corporations or the rich. And frankly, neither one of those are solution. Neither one of those frames are a solution to the larger problem. If we realize that this is bad for the rich, the poor, the middle class, liberals, conservatives, everybody's invested in this. The conservatives who have seen this film so far who have given it a chance, have looked for reasons to attack it, and they've come up to me afterwards and said, I got a lot out of that film as well. So I hope we can change the conversation. I mean, you don't want to get too grandiose about a, a film, but you know, we're doing our part, and we hope that we, I feel that that's necessary in one way or another. Secretary Reich, really quick, there's a, obviously a big showdown coming up with healthcare. I'm just wondering what you think will happen, how it will play out, and I say there's a question there. Uh, well, uh, one way or another, uh, the government will be funded. I went through, when I was Secretary of Labor, we had in 1995, beginning of 1996, the last government shutdown, uh, and I had to send 16,000 Labor Department workers home without knowing when, when they would be paid uh, or whether they would be rehired. Uh, this, it's not a pretty picture. 
there may be a shutdown for a week or 10 days. It depends a lot on a civil war now going on in the Republican Party. Uh, the Republican Party is being taken over by radicals, uh, radical right wing. I, I think it's dangerous for the country uh, because these people don't really uh, seem to care about governing. They seem to care more about winning than governing. And uh, we'll see if John Boehner is a statesman. I mean, he will have an opportunity within the next uh, week and certainly within the next three weeks because you also have this debt ceiling issue. He will have an opportunity to act as a statesman uh, and submit these issues to the entire House of Representatives. He's going to have to depend on Democrats. If he's not a statesman, if he's most, most worried about just holding on to his speaker position in the House, then uh, we're all going to suffer. By, by the way, you keep on hearing about Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz. Forget it. He is nothing. He is irrelevant. This all comes down to whether John Boehner wants to be a statesman. Well, I think it was right here. Hi, uh, Secretary Rush. I'm curious. Um, you mentioned um, demographics. I'm wondering, do you think that that is going to be enough to overcome the countervailing forces in place globalization, the ability of the rich to get around that by outsourcing jobs? Uh, yes, I, I do. Because again, uh, other countries, uh, I mean, Germany would be a good example uh, right now, subjected to the same forces of globalization and technological change, have done a far better job maintaining their middle classes, high immediate incomes, uh, preventing the, the very wealthy from going home with basically all the winnings. Uh, it's possible to do this, even with globalization and technology, if you get the rules of the game right for your people. Uh, the real question is about politics. It's not economics. The real question is whether we are going to see uh, the kind of political mobilization we've seen at least three times over the last hundred years, when, as I said before, capitalism has started to go off the rails. And I think the answer is Probably yes. I mean, this country, as Winston Churchill uh, reputedly once said, uh, Americans always do the right thing eventually after they've exhausted all other alternatives. Uh, and I think that we will. Question for Bob. What was the single most important thing you did as Secretary of Labor to reduce income equality? And was it possibly overturned by the Bush administration? Uh, well, there, there were a number of things. Again, there's no magic bullet here, and I was very frustrated. You'll see in the movie uh, just how frustrated I was. I, I didn't think that I did enough, and I don't think the Clinton administration did enough. Uh, I was in battle very often uh, during those years with uh, people who were personally friends of mine, but Bob Rubin, who was Secretary of the Treasury, uh, who had a very different vision than I did. Uh, but we lifted the minimum wage. We uh, got the uh, earned income tax credit expanded dramatically. Uh, we had family and medical leave uh, enacted. Uh, we did a lot of stuff that helped a lot of people, but we didn't do nearly enough. Hi, I didn't get to see your film ahead of time. This might be in the movie itself. Now it looks like um, the Gilded Age or the age of the robber barons when you talk about the 1% having most of the wealth. How do we go from, I'm a local three electrician, how does labor go, what can we do now? Like comparing back, you say 
three specific times in US history of how we make that leap from going from a gilded age into making change so we can have more equity in, in income. What, what are those small steps that we can begin taking? Uh, we, if we were having this discussion in the year 1900, uh, we would be talking about robber barons, about extraordinary inequality, about urban squalor, uh, corruption of our politicians. Uh, we'd be having a discussion about a set of conditions that look remarkably like they are today. And somebody might say, well, how are we ever going to get out of this? And then what happened in 1901? The progressive era in the United States suddenly emerged. How did it suddenly emerge? It emerged, I think, be be because the gap between the ideals that we all agree are terribly important, bedrock ideals, and reality that we could not any longer ignore became so large that the cognitive dissonance was just not possible to live with. And people were ready for that kind of fundamental change. And they had already, I mean, there was a kind of latent demand. I think there is a latent demand right now. And I can't tell you exactly when it's going to come. A mention was made of social media. Uh, I think social media are tremendously important in terms of alerting people, sending information, rounding people up. But it's not enough. You have to have face-to-face -face meetings. Organization requires commitment. Commitment requires face-to-face -face peer groups that are actually going to spend time sacrificing their time, turning off their televisions, getting off the computers, and actually doing real organizing. So you need both social media, but you also need real on-the-ground work. And that's what's going to happen, and that's what's happened well, we didn't have social media in 1900, obviously, but we had other media, but we needed the ground troops. Well, just to uh, add to that, so film comes out Friday. You haven't missed it yet. We're on, uh, you know, Tuesday, I think, right? So uh, it comes out Friday. It's going to be at the Angelica and at Lincoln Center. So here in New York, you can see it in one of those places. Um, Lincoln Plaza. Lincoln Plaza, yeah. Um, so uh, it's important. I think impor it's important to, to get how people can organize uh, right now, like people are going to want to know after you see this film. Again, I'll just tell you, we have that website. We, we've, we have one of our things that we're focused on is um, how labor can get together and do something. So check it out, inequalityforall.com. Hi, Professor Reich. Uh, I'm a Berkeley alum, and my buddy here, we, we're both in New York now. Go Bears. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my question is about globalization. You touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, to what extent do you think this is a global phenomenon? Um, I, I travel quite a bit for work, and I would say New York probably has more in common with, say, Hong Kong or London than it does with uh, many of the Rust Belt cities in the United States. And so when you look at sort of the inequality, um, you see the same phenomenon happening in China and Brazil. And, and, and it seems like the, the global economy is moving in this direction, in a winner-take-all direction. So um, in, in one sense, uh, how, how do you think just in America we can tackle this issue, but more so on a, on a global level? 
Uh, well, you're absolutely right. Uh, many of the same things we're seeing here in the United States are occurring elsewhere and for similar reasons. Technological change, globalization, uh, the demise of, to the extent that other countries had labor unions, the demise of labor unions, a tax structure uh, that is becoming ever more regressive rather than progressive, uh, uh, financial markets that are taking over uh, and uh, wreaking havoc on economies. I mean, we could go through the list. Educational systems that are failing. Uh, but the United States is large enough, uh, like the European, like the Eurozone, like, uh, like China. Uh, these places are large enough and powerful enough that if they get the rules right, they can actually uh, not be victims of global capitalism. They can actually set, partly, the rules of global capitalism. The United States is the biggest and most powerful economy in the world. You know, we, again, if we make the rules that are, are going to generate not only efficiency and innovation, but also uh, a far greater sharing of prosperity here, uh, we could be exemplars for a lot of the rest of the world. One thing we see in the movie is that as widening income inequality grows, um, so did the share of income going to the financial sector, which is a big part of, you know, say, say New York City for instance, you also see political polarization grows at the same time. So you're seeing some of the things that make it a good society to live in, something that makes us feel like we're all in it together, are connected to widening income inequality, which is connected to some of these trends that you're seeing all over the world. But as he's saying, they're not inevitable. We don't have to be that way. I think that's one of the, the sort of horrible you know, sort of outcomes of this discussion is people get all the way through, they see that it's wrong, they feel bad about it, and then they throw up their hands and say, Nothing we can do about it. These globalization and technology has been happening since the 70s, and we're just stuck with it. That's the only thing we can do. It's not true. You can do something about it. It's, the economy is for us. We're not for the economy. If we get together and we do something about it, it's our economy. It's not, it not just happening to us. So. Good afternoon. I was wondering, moving towards the future and seeing the trend toward uh, technical efficiency and automation at the workplace. It, it appears that we're headed toward a, a point where the need to keep the workforce as consumers and the need to maximize profit through automation and, you know, previously through, uh, through globalization as well. But it, it seems like there's going to be a point where that's going to come to a head, where They've already replaced all of our jobs with robots, and now we don't have jobs to buy their products. They're basically going to just sit on the shelf and... And do you think we're not there? Is, I mean, we're headed there, right. Well, I think, I think we are headed there, uh, but in, I, would, I would say in a slightly different way. It's not that uh, we don't have jobs. Uh, right now, we are still in the gravitational pull of the Great Recession. Uh, but if you go back to 2007, 2006, 2005, we had a great deal of technological displacement, but people had jobs. The problem is that their jobs didn't pay very much. Uh, most of the jobs created since the Great Recession of 2009, 2008, most of the new jobs pay less than the jobs that were lost. So what what's happening is that Globalization and technological change, it's not that they are eliminating jobs, they are driving wages for about 75% of the workforce down. Uh, and they are creating huge rewards at the very top. Uh, this is the subject of the movie. This is, but what uh, I cannot stress enough with all of you is that it is 
wrong to be a technological or an economic determinist. As if these forces are inevitable and we can't do anything about them. We can, we have in the past, we can in the future. Uh, we don't have to be neo-Luddites and smash all the technology. Uh, we can take advantage of technology. Uh, but we can do it in a way that is much, much broader based in terms of the benefits of new technologies. I, I, I want to say, if I may, just one uh, last thing. Uh, uh, and this is a compliment, another compliment to Jake. This is not an eat your spinach movie. <laughs> and by that I mean, uh, Jake has created a movie that is entertaining, that is fun to watch, that is uh, people who have gone to screenings and we've been with them because I'm sort of, we're kind of curious how people respond. Uh, they, uh, they come out and they say, I learned so much and I had fun and I, as I said before, I cried and I laughed. Uh, and uh, this is an entertaining movie, but it's designed very subtly to change the conversation in this country and uh, enable people to see things that they did not see before. So please see it. Hey. Could I, so, so also to, to add on, to, just to add again on what, what he was saying is, um, is every other film that you would do a discussion in a me, filmmaker about, we'd be talking about, you know, that close up and, you know, how did the story arc go? And here a lot of it's, it's, it's about politics, you know, it's about the storytelling. But it's an amazing film of its own, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a film that works on its own separate of the politics. It's hard to discuss it now. The film comes out on Friday, so it's before it's come out in theaters. But I think it's, it, it works on both levels. I mean, in some way, my experience in these Q&As has been that the filmmaking feels um, simple, as if the story just kind of told itself. And it was an incredible journey to kind of own this argument in a way that I feel like made it work as a movie. At the same time, it's all his argument that we're laying out, or it's, it's, it's his argument that we're laying out. But, uh, you know, I just say, like, uh, you know, it's a movie and it's about politics, and, uh, you know, thank you for asking your questions and taking the time to talk to us about it. And I will second it. It is an entertaining movie. It's a funny movie, and it's, I would say it's also an empowering movie. If I mean, sometimes that word is thrown around too much, but... Um, it is terrific, and to close it out, just a reminder that it, do, it does, uh, does begin its theatrical run um, this weekend um, in New York at the Angelica and Lincoln Plaza. It's also going to 24, 25 other cities starting this weekend, and it will continue from there. So please tell your friends, tweet about it, and the theaters, for all. And the theaters are on our website, too, at right. inequalityforall.com. Yes. Thank you to Jake, Jacob Kornbluth and Secretary Robert Reich. Thank you. Thank you.